values are really important. Being guided by values is a powerful way to resonate with a certain community today. And it can be uh, a way to expand the definition of how we even think about community, because it doesn't just have to have to be about how old you are, how you look or where you live, or whether you're, you know, a mom between the ages of 35 and 45. These days, community can mean somebody who believes in this thing the way that I do. It's Mitzi and Mike, and this is the Wave Social Podcast powered by Arcade Studios, a show for marketers, creators, brand builders, and anyone else who wants to make waves online. We sit down with experts and tastemakers behind today's up-and-coming brands. And today on the show, we have Dalma Altan. Yeah, Dalma is a D2C expert and content creator. She's affectionately known on TikTok as the B-School for Women. She also founded Make Lane, which we talk about in this episode. Um, basically, she's just a really seasoned expert when it comes to D2C brands, branding in general, venture capital. Uh, we actually found her on TikTok yeah. and I've been following her for a while. She's just such a, she has so much knowledge about this space. So I'm really excited about this episode. Yeah, I, I'm really impressed with her TikTok content, um, even just for how prepared she always is. Mm -hmm. Like the amount of research she must do for the analysis that she shares. Like she's talking about brands like Glossier and Outdoor Voices, and even Fenty Beauty and, and stuff like that. But it's not just her opinion. It's like, well-researched perspectives on yeah. why things are happening the way they're happening for them and things that they can do better and stuff like that. Yeah. And she didn't just read one article. She says that she spends up to two weeks researching something before she does a video for it, which is really impressive. It's crazy. She yeah. posts consistently. And then she also has her own point of view that she shares as well. Mm -hmm. A couple themes that really stood out to us that we unpack in the episode are um, the idea of or what it means to be an identity based brand. And then also what she refers to as the curse of capital. Yeah. So. One thing I really was inspired by was when she talked about her 100 day challenge, yes. which was like crazy. So she she decides or she gets on these 100 day challenges for herself and she'll commit to doing something every day for 100 days. And she did that with TikTok, which actually helped spark some of the growth that she had. And, and even before her. TikTok, she did it with YouTube. Yeah, she did it with YouTube. But what was crazy about her YouTube cha challenge is that at some point she got sick and she had to go to the hospital, but she continued posting videos literally from her hospital room. For five days. For five yeah. days, which is a whole... That's dedication. Yeah, that's like a whole new level of dedication. If I went to the hospital in the middle of a 100-day challenge, I'd be like, all right, I'm out. That's it. It's fate. I wasn't meant to do this. There's like a million reasons I will come up with to not do something. I know. So like I have so much respect for that consistency. A 30-day cha challenge seems like a lot, <clears throat> let alone 100. That's Literally. like three whole months. Yeah. What are, I can't think of something like after we talked to her, about, to her about this, it was really inspiring. And I was thinking about like, what can I challenge myself to do every day for 100 days? Do you have anything? Take my vitamins. <laughs> Well, that, like, I would love to exercise every day for 100 days. Yeah, that would be cool. I would love to create a TikTok every day for 100 days. Yeah. I've also, I thought about doing TikTok just because it's the platform right mm -hmm. now. Um, but I also am just struggling to do that much video content, especially with my face in it. So I was saying to you the other day, I was thinking about doing Twitter because I feel like Twitter is mm -hmm. kind of making this resurgence of of uh, virality and just like growth. And I feel like writing is something that would come a lot more naturally to me than than video and you're such a good communicator and you're really good at writing 
Thank you very much. And you have a handsome face, so you could do filming if you want. Well, I think maybe I could do 100 days straight of Twitter, but maybe a few TikToks a week. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So we'll see. Maybe we'll catch you on TikTok. I might have to start a new account. I feel like mine's so old at this point. And like Your TikTok? Or my Twitter. Oh. So old at this point and so inactive enough for like long stretches of time that I feel like the algorithm gods have just... You better do it soon me. before Elon Musk buys it and then you have to pay to get an account. Dang. It's getting real. <laughs> anyway, should we get in the good, into the good stuff? Yeah, enjoy this episode with Dulma. All right. All right, Dulma, we're so excited to have you on the podcast. I can't wait to extract all the knowledge that you've shared on TikTok. And and I wanted to start at the beginning before we get into the TikTok stuff. Um, you are so knowledgeable in the D2C space. And I'm curious, like, where did all that knowledge come from? And maybe you could just share a little bit about your career tra- trajectory and how you got to where you are now. Absolutely. So, I, um, I studied international development at Brown for undergrad. And while I was at Brown, I interned at a, a branding agency called Red Antler. And they work with big D2C brands. They do the branding for companies like Casper, Allbirds, Birchbox, Rent the Runway, et cetera. And so they were opening up an office in the Bay Area. They're normally based in uh, Brooklyn. And I got a taste of that D2C world, uh, which for me is kind of like the intersection of um, venture capital and tech, but it's sort of more tech adjacent and it focuses on consumer brands, right? And what I love about consumer brands, especially fast growing ones, is that there's a lot of storytelling involved. And so I got a taste of that. I really liked it. Um, And I also just got more intrigued by entrepreneurship in general. So I graduated, I worked at Google for a stint uh, and I was in the AdWords department helping SMBs with their advertising strategies. So learned a little bit of search engine marketing. And after that, I freelanced as a digital marketer for different software startups in San Francisco. So I was kind of bopping around, um, following my instincts, doing what was interesting to me And I think all along, I wanted to go back into a more entrepreneurial role myself. And so in 2017, I started my first business. It was called Potion. It was an online fragrance retailer. The idea was similar to Detox Market or Credo, or if you know any of these clean beauty retailers, but the idea was how do we make it easier for consumers who are more health conscious and ingredient conscious to sample, discover, and buy non-toxic fragrances curated from these beautiful artists and perfumeries around the world. And I was inspired to do that because for a few reasons. One is I love fragrance and my mom and I, when I was growing up, bonded over fragrance a lot. She loves her Chanel's and Dior's. Um, but years ago when I was in college, she actually had some health issues come up that made her a little bit more sensitized to the regular personal care and fragrance products she used to use. And so I realized people like her need products that are a little bit more transparent in terms of ingredients. And that was hard to find. So I thought that that's a gap in the market. And also I just love the storytelling and kind of artistry of fragrance. Um, And so that seemed like something I could really be interested in. And it also seems like a clear need. I personally believe that if you're going to start some sort of a business or a brand, it really should be addressing um, a problem that hasn't been solved yet, instead of just trying to replicate something that already exists, right? And so I felt like that hit all those points for me. Um, And I started that business, I reached out to a woman who the only person I could find who was a, a natural perfume blogger, because there are simply not that many of them. And uh, even now, I don't know if there are many, but she was 
the only person I could find who was reputable in that space. And I reached out to her, got her on the phone. I wanted to ask her for some advice. And 15 minutes into our call, she said, I love this idea. Give me some equity. I will help you launch it and I'll get the right brands on board. And so suddenly all these perfumeries, these sort of luxury kind of niche perfumeries that were not answering my emails, because why would they, who even am I? They were uh, on board because they knew that she was involved. And so we got it off the ground and basically curated 12 different brands to start with on our um, on our well, online store. And uh, it was on Shopify. It was a really scrappy operation. I DIY'd the, the initial logo. I would not recommend that. It was not very good. Um, I overestimated my design abilities, but then I re- had hired somebody to redo it. But basically that was my crash course in e-commerce. It was my crash course in running a small business. Um, eventually she stepped back and I was just wearing all the hats. And at the time I was living in the Bay Area uh, and I had been there for four and a half years. And because I wasn't working in tech anymore and because I had entered this world of beauty, the beauty industry, I wanted to be where it would make more sense for me business-wise, professionally. And so I moved down to Los Angeles. So I packed all these boxes of perfume uh, in the back of my little blue Prius, drove down to LA and from apartment to apartment, sublet to sublet, I was hauling these boxes of perfume with me and, you know, fulfilling little orders out of um, my closet. And so that was um, a lot of work. Um, it was a great learning experience and I learned two things. One, you really need the right gross margins to be able to scale an e-commerce business, which we did not have. And, uh, and it helps to have a little bit of budget to be able to experiment with different marketing channels. And that's also not something I necessarily had at the time. Uh, and I, uh, I realized that there weren't any communities for women who are e-commerce founders like me. And I found a lot of e-commerce groups in general online and on Facebook, but a lot of them were more focused on, for example, Amazon FBA. And it was less focused on how do I build a brand that can make an impact? How do I solve a real problem? How do I build something that lasts? It was more about how do I arbitrage? How do I make a quick profit? And that can be fine, um, but that's not what I was trying to do. So I wanted to connect with other women, especially where we could really commiserate about the challenges of the entrepreneurial journey, swap marketing tactics, you know, share um, contact info of different packaging suppliers, really tactical stuff. And so I didn't see any communities like that. So I started my own. And uh, at first it was a small community, mostly based in LA. And then it grew to uh, an international community. And now it's uh, 1,700 women around the world who are all e-commerce D2C founders. Um, some of them have raised tens of millions in venture capital. Others are totally bootstrapped um, and everything in between. And um, they're in beauty, fashion, food, beverage, etc. cetera. Uh, and through running that for a couple of years now and talking to the hundreds of women in it and also bringing in hundreds of guest speakers to teach workshops, um, I have learned a whole lot about e-commerce and D2C. So that's a very long answer to your question. I love it. Yeah, yeah that's w- awesome. We'd love to learn more about uh, Make Lane, which is the community that you started for D2C founders. Um, but I'd also love to hear about Potion and what happened with it. Like, are you still managing it? Um, was that something that you kind of viewed as a learning experience and moved on from? Where Where do you sit with that now? Yeah, I mean, I always started it thinking, I like this idea and it's going to be my sandbox for learning about e-commerce, learning about entrepreneurship. And I knew it was going to be kind of an experiment as to whether we even had the margins we needed, the conversion rates we needed, because keep in mind that I was selling fragrances, very expensive fragrances from 
brands that nobody, most people had not heard of. And we needed to sell a lot of samples to even get people to potentially buy a full size, which is where we made the real margins. And we were losing money on the sample packs. And so, and, and then when you factor in the cost of my labor, um, that it was also, you know, that made it even less profitable. So I think because of that, I just saw, you know, I, I learned a lot from this, but I think it's going to be incredibly difficult to actually make this a profitable venture and scale it. And this is not the kind of thing I would want to raise capital for. It wouldn't even make sense because we were buying, um, you know, 50% off retail price. And so we just didn't have um, the kind of foundation we needed to be even able to raise capital. So so for all those reasons, I, um, I bootstrapped it for a couple of years, but eventually closed it down, um, which felt totally okay. Uh, it, it, it felt like the right decision. And I went into it knowing it was an experiment, but I do think this is sort of like another conversation. I don't think people have enough. Um, it can be hard to walk away from your first business because your identity gets tied up in it. You, totally. you know, you, you totally sort of associate your own worth and value sometimes even with the success of, you know, your first venture, especially. So, so that was a challenge, but ultimately I, I, uh, closed it down. Is there any advice just on that note of like, it, it's hard to let go of your first business or like you may be personally wrapped up in it. Like, is there any advice you could give to anyone who's listening that might feel like they're in that place? Like they put all this, these blood, sweat and tears into their first D2C brand and they really love it. But there's kind of these symptoms that make them feel like it may be time to give up and try something else. Like, what would you say to them? Yeah. So two things. If you are challenged by walking away from a business that you know is not necessarily working, there are two potential sources of that resistance, right? One is internal. Maybe you yourself would feel like a failure or you have some resistance to it because of what you would, how you would feel about it. And the other is what are other people going to think about it? And I would say, for the first one, you just have to remember that entrepreneurship really builds on itself and every experience is a win in a sense because you learn from it and that's how you just become better. And so that is so important to remember. Uh, and I also feel kind of fortunate to have come from the subculture of Silicon Valley where failure is so normalized and it's even sometimes in some ways um, celebrated because it means you tried, you did something that you believed in, you kind of went for it and it's really normal. In fact, it's more standard for something to not work out, but then you build on those failures and those learnings. Um, and I would say if the concern is what people think, then it's just uh, it's just a matter of kind of doing the personal work to realize that if you are guided by what people think, then you're probably not going to get very far and it's going to be painful for you. So Totally. I want to talk about business showers. Tell us about what sparked that idea and you know, I saw that you got some news coverage about it. Like, give us a bit more info on, on, on that. Yeah. So when I decided to close down Potion, um, it was kind of after I saw that my community was picking up some traction. People were really engaged with the workshops that we were doing, taught by guest speakers. Uh, and there was something there. So I thought, why don't I just build an education-focused company out of this? And so I made that pivot. And I remember when I first started working on it, I thought, oh, it, I again, this is not necessarily something I would want to raise venture capital for, but I wish there were some kind of in-between where I could have that milestone that people could celebrate. And, you know, I could maybe even get my friends and family to support me in some capacity. I wish that existed. And then I realized we do that kind of, we have those milestones where we celebrate women 
when it comes to their personal lives. So milestones like having a baby, um, getting married, right? Baby showers, bridal showers. Why don't we have that for business? And that was the idea I had. And I started sort of casually sharing it with some friends and everybody I talked to were so excited about it. Um, my guy friends, my female friends. And so I thought, oh, that's, that's a fun idea. There's something here. It, it's resonating. And there's something in the zeitgeist where people are recognizing that that is increasingly what makes sense because a lot of the cultural traditions that get entrenched in society are based on thing traditions that were normalized decades ago, right? If not centuries ago. And so I thought our traditions have not caught up to the reality of women starting businesses and being entrepreneurial and being very professionally driven. And so let's make this more of a thing. Let's just start dialogue around it. And I um, signed up for a Squarespace account and I created a really scrappy landing page, literally a single landing page website. And I think I bought a template for it, customized it a little bit and just included some interesting stats on how often women are starting businesses and how women are starting businesses at a rate that's faster than their male counterparts actually. And often out of necessity because when they do have kids, not all of them, but many of them, when they do have kids, they still wanna earn extra income, but they want more flexibility. So for all these different reasons, it was becoming a cultural shift. Um, and so I included those stats and I created a little PDF guide in Canva of this is what a business shower would be. Here's you know a checklist of things to do if you wanna throw in for yourself or for a friend. Um, and then I shared it around in some communities and people loved the idea. I shared it, especially in some female founder communities. Um, and then I kind of just forgot about it. I was like, all right, that was fun. Okay. And back to working on my actual business. But then a year later, um, this was in 20, actually in, in early 2021, early last year, I thought, you know what, it's time to revive this. I just want to kind of polish up the website a little bit. So I went back into it, rejiggered it a little bit. Um, and then and then I shared it again, people loved it again, and I still didn't really have any idea for what to do with it. I just wanted people to know about the idea so they could do it if they wanted to, if it resonated. Um, and somehow this New York Times reporter found it. She reached out to me. This was sometime last May, I think. And um, she sent me an email and said, hey, I want to write um, a piece on business showers and would love to mention you and what you've done with Startup Stork was the name of um, the landing page. Nice. Um, and we hopped on, yeah, we hopped on a on an interview. I was freaking out, obviously, but trying to play cool. And we hopped on a call and did a little interview. Um, and then she said the article would be published in a few weeks and then she disappeared. So I thought, okay, maybe that's just not gonna happen. But months later, I think in June or July, she emailed me again and said, hey, the piece is going to be published in a few days. So I scrambled to edit, do whatever copy edits needed to be made, fix some of the margins as best as I could. Um, and then the piece dropped and it was featured in the New York Times. It was even in the print edition of the Sunday business section. Um, my mom was very proud. Um, so that was uh, a fun little thing that I did. And and it still you know, it exists it's at startupstork.co. Um, and I still don't know what to do with it. I've toyed around with the idea of doing like a sort of a Zola for uh, business showers or Zola, like a gift registry yeah. for people starting businesses. Um, but it's, you know, I think when you're more entrepreneurially minded, you're always having ideas and it's just a matter of trying to focus and not spread yourself too thin. So if anybody wants to create that, they're welcome to do it. Um, wow. Tell me about it. <laughs> Free business idea. I think it's wow. there's definitely some potential there. I think it'd be so fun to throw business showers um, for other people who are starting their business. Like I wish I had one when I started mine, but I think we need to normalize that a bit more. Yeah, it's awesome. Speaking of doing a lot of things, uh, we first discovered you on TikTok where you have a very respectable presence. 
And it's also it's been a great resource for us because we do a lot of work in the D2C space too. Um, you've got nearly 60,000 followers there, over 1.5 million likes. How did you get into TikTok and why did you do that? Like what, what was the angle for you getting into that platform? So I do these things called 100 day challenges where I will pick some sort of a creative project or some sort of a personal development challenge and I'll do it for 100 days in a row and post about it publicly for every single one of those days. And it's a way of holding myself accountable and leaning into the edges of my comfort zone. So I first did it with YouTube and it wasn't meant to gain an audience. I just wanted to get used to posting videos online. Um, and also it's kind of scary to put yourself out there and be seen. I think for a lot of people it can be scary and it was scary for me at first. So I thought because I'm scared of it, I need to lean into it. So it seems like a fun project. So I did that with YouTube um, to the point where I actually ended up in the emergency room because I got a, a random kidney infection. And I was in the emergency room and I was in a hospital gown. They didn't know what was wrong with me. They were testing me for all these things. I had all these like thing, like wires and things hooked up to me. And I remember being so exhausted because I was so sick and so feverish, but I thought I can't break my streak. So even those five days I was in the emergency room, every single one of those days I published a video <laughs> and, and my friends and family were like, are you okay? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> but I did not break my streak. So I kept up those hundred days. And then um, a little less than a year later, I decided to do with TikTok for fun. I did not know what the topic was going to be. I did not have an idea for a niche. I just wanted to get used to it because I think it can be a powerful way to just be disciplined about committing to something, even if you're not attached to the outcomes. So I thought I'm going to post on TikTok every day for hundred days. It's going to be my um, hundred day challenge for this year. And, um, and I don't know what it's going to be about, but it, it doesn't matter. It's not about that. So I started posting and three weeks into it, I was posting on average three times a day, three weeks into, and it was all just following random trends and it wasn't really going anywhere. And three weeks into it, I was telling one of my roommates, I wish I could talk about what I really want to talk about. I wish I could talk about like nerdy business things. And she was saying, well, if you're going to be posting for hundred days, you might as well. And I was telling her, I'm kind of scared to do that. Cause what if nobody likes it? What if it's dumb? What if I put all this work into it? I had all these excuses. She then sat me down, showed me this very inspiring, like motivational Will Smith video. And now he's, you know, not the most popular person, but she showed me this video and it worked. And I was like, you know what? You're right. And then I started posting kind of business focused videos. And I picked something that I thought would um, be a strong hook on TikTok. So I picked the Kardashians. So I thought I'm going to use the Kardashian brands as a Trojan horse to get people interested in business. And it worked. It immediately went viral. Um, one of the first videos I posted in that niche, uh, I think has at this point over 2 million views. It was about um, their different businesses. And since then I've just posted about brands and brand analyses, brand strategy, um, different celebrity brands, but also just like non-celebrity brands, venture capital. And it picked up um, a lot of traction. And I've met some incredible people and gotten some interesting opportunities through it too. But that was never the point. The point was just to talk about what I enjoy talking about. So That's awesome. I feel like a few people on our team have done these like 30 day challenges, but maybe we just need to bring it to a hundred days. Yeah. A hundred days is like next level. I was just I thinking like, can I do that for a hundred days? That's so inspiring, but especially scary. when you're in the hospital and you just keep it no going. No kidding. For, so obviously, you know, you pivoted a little bit and a couple of videos went viral. Was that the point where you're like, okay, TikTok is just part of my life. Now I'm going to keep this going. Or when in the hundred days where you're like, I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep the drive alive after day 100. I think pretty much as soon as I realized that when I talk about business, 
it was making an impact. People were commenting regularly saying it was so helpful for them. I was um, getting leads for interesting projects to work on with people. Um, I have started advising brands. It was just leading to so many interesting things. And I felt like it was really meaningful for me and also so enjoyable for me. It almost feels unfair um, because I love doing it so much and it really doesn't feel like work, but it's opening all these doors for me. But, um, but I, I mean, I think that's the beauty of the internet, right? You can post things that you feel passionate about and it kind of just begets all these opportunities. But um, I don't know when it was, but I think as soon as it started to sort of like take, I realized, oh, I, I've actually wanted to do something like this for a really long time. I just didn't know it was going to look like this. Because even back when I was working at Google, I remember being on the Google bus thinking, I, you know, Google is an incredible company, but I just don't feel like I fit in at a big organization. But what would I ultimately want to do? And I remember thinking I'd love to have a media company that um, does storytelling around female founders and female founded brands. I remember thinking that back in 2015. And it took me a really long time to get here, but it turns out TikTok was the was the key. I love it. What is your goal with TikTok now? Like now, like you were kind of taking it seriously and then you saw some traction and now you're getting opportunities from it. What do you hope that TikTok is for people now? I think the way I see it is the way I think a lot of people see it strategically, which is that it's a great top of funnel. It's a great starting point for building an audience and validating um, sort of any kind of idea that you want to pursue and building also authority and, and credibility in the space, right? So in my case, I've always wanted to have a platform that advises female-founded brands or mission-driven brands and also potentially even funds them and um, helps them access different sources of capital um, and tells their story, promotes them, right? Sort of very full service kind of platform designed to help brands that are doing something good in the world. And I think this is a really good starting point for that. And I don't know exactly what the steps are going to look like from here, but I think this is a really great platform to start building that credibility, attracting um, whatever talent or whatever kind of brands would be involved in something like this. And then, and then it's a matter of sort of like, I think, holding the long-term vision and being open to how you get there after you take the first steps. Nice. And what, what inspires your content now? Like I've, I've seen, you know, there's like some celebrity business like videos, and then there's like venture capital focused videos. Like what is it um, that sparks or how do you get inspiration for videos that you're posting now? It's a combination of things. Um, I have certain things that I feel excited about. If I don't feel excited about it, I don't do it. <laughs> and also if people are requesting something a lot, then I add it to the list or bump it up in the list. Um, and then in general, I want to pick case studies that are really educational because the whole mission of my TikTok page is to kind of democratize access to all of this information that a lot of people don't always know, right? I've been in, um, kind of the world of D2C and Silicon Valley for since 2014 at this point. And I've talked to so many entrepreneurs. Um, I've talked to so many VCs. I've talked to so many people who are just serial entrepreneurs. And I've learned so much from that. But I can see how if you haven't been completely immersed in this world, things like, you know, who should fundraise? How do you even go about fundraising? Like, how do you start to build that network of investors? Or, you know, if you have raised 
raise money or even if you you're totally bootstrapping then how can you compete um how can you stand out as a brand and how do you sort of like tell a story that's captivating all these different things they require a lot of trial and error to even learn and i want to just democratize access to all of this information that i've been privileged enough to be able to access mm -hmm. i love it and your videos like are so knowledgeable I, i've said that at the top of our call together like i learned so much from your videos especially like the analysis ones how long does it take for you to film that like in terms of research like there's got to be lots of research that goes into that like how long start to finish would you say it takes you to get one of those videos live it depends on the topic i mean some of the videos you've probably seen are kind of just one-off answering questions those are quick right those are kind of off the cuff they take like less than five minutes but then there are ones that require really deep dive research um i did a series on taylor swift and her sort of you know master's scandal and that took me probably two or three weeks of research. Um, I've done some videos on Fenty Beauty by Rihanna. That took me probably two weeks. And it's not full, full time, but it's a big chunk of every day because the way I like to approach it is the, I want the video, the three or two minutes you see of TikTok content to be the tip of the iceberg of the research I've done. Because I want to know, even if other people can't easily always tell, right? I want to know that I've done as much comprehensive research as I can, that I feel such conviction in my conclusions, in my analysis. I don't want to have missed anything if I can help it. So I try to be super comprehensive, but that there is a trade-off there because I can't be as efficient in churning out a lot of content. Right. I've seen some other accounts that, you know, will kind of take like articles and then basically summarize them and create videos out of them. And I think that can be interesting to an extent, but I can tell the difference and I put a lot of analysis into my videos and that requires taking it um, that sort of like last mile in terms of research. So it can take anywhere from like a day of diving into, let's say this beauty brand just got acquired by this conglomerate, kind of unpacking that. I'm just trying to get through all those articles or it can take a couple weeks if it's somebody with you know, either an individual or a brand that has a lot of content out there online about them. Yeah. I mean, it shows, I think yeah. like I learned so much from them. So that's I'm honestly awesome. glad that you said it takes like two to three weeks for you to put these videos together. Cause I was like, if it's not, <laughs> like, if it's just like a quick gut check or quick analysis, then like, I just feel like I'm not intelligent. <laughs> <laughs> no, it does take a lot of time. Yeah. And this, this is research on top of the years of just understanding the exactly. landscape, right? So it, it does take a lot. <laughs> totally. Yeah, definitely. A big theme that we've kind of seen woven into this season of our, of our guest interviews has just been around the topic of finding a niche. And uh, it's clear that you have a specific focus with the content that you're sharing. And your bio says that you're the TikTok B-School for women. Uh, curious how you arrived at that, um, but also just any tips for people or even your point of view on niching down and uh, how to hone in on your focus. Yeah, I'm glad you like that little tagline because actually one of my followers commented it and I loved it so much. And I told her, I'm going to make this my tagline. I did. I the way I mean, 
I just told you the story of how I even arrived at this niche, which was not immediate, right? I didn't go into TikTok thinking this is my niche because you can't really know. You can have an idea of maybe what you want your niche to be, but it's going to depend on is there a response from the public, from the audience, from the community on TikTok? And do I enjoy it? Because you might think that you like posting about a certain kind of thing, but you might be totally off or there might be some other thing that you actually get really energized by. And that's important because the content treadmill is so real. And if you are creating a lot of content and you start to feel that pressure, and then additionally, if it becomes part of your livelihood, it you can burn out very easily. I think a lot of creators face that, especially on platforms like YouTube, where there's this constant pressure to come up with new ideas and turn out stuff. And so if you are experiencing that, it's so imperative that you give yourself um, some sort of space to create the stuff that energizes you. Otherwise, you're going to burn out so easily. Um, so luckily, I love talking about business. Um, that I feel like even within business, there are so many different directions I can take it in. So I feel like it's a kind of roomy niche. So I feel like I can focus on venture capital if I want to some weeks, or I can focus on a celebrity brand or just influencers and their different business strategies. So I feel like it's roomy enough for me. Um, but as far as advice for niching down, I think it has to be something that energizes you. It has to be something that ties back to your larger objectives in work and in life. Um, and it, I think ideally it also is doing something that doesn't already exist. Um, because I do think that TikTok is a platform where it's easy to kind of copy people. And sometimes that's some parts of that can be necessary to even just figure out what your own voice is, what your own niche should be. Um, but I would advise against, you know, outright copying. And, and I've started to see that with my account and, and it doesn't really bother me, but I, I do find myself thinking like, you should be doing what you're really good at because that's really what's going to take off. And TikTok is a platform where people can really sense authenticity and conviction. Um, and so if you're talking about something that you're absolutely jazzed by, it can be geology. I was following a foraging account the other day. I don't care about foraging. I just like her energy because she's your clearly so excited about it. And people just love enthusiasm. That's, that's the trick to TikTok. Talk about something that just lights you up because people want that energy. Mm -hmm. That's such good advice. You talk a lot about your, the future of D2C brands and how the playbook needs to change. And especially for consumer packaged goods brands. And I want to ask you to expand on some of those thoughts um, that you've shared on your TikTok in a few different layers. So first, I want to talk about identity-based brands. You did a video about that. Can you unpack what that means? Like a lot of our listeners are either brand founders or they're marketers um, or like in-house marketers. And I feel like that's really such a great um, perspective on how to approach branding now. Um, what does it mean to you when you hear like say identity-based brands? What does that mean and how do brands find their identity? Mm -hmm. So that's a great question. I, I came up with that phrase because I was explaining that these days the market is so saturated, especially in beauty, skincare, fashion, food and beverage, right? How many different CB CBD beverage brands are out there, like gazillions. Yeah. And so if you want to stand out, what you really need to do, one of the things you need to do at least is cultivate a community. And the easiest way to cultivate community, because community is not just this sort of fluffy concept. Community means people have such loyalty around your brand that there's strong word of mouth, there's strong referrals, there's strong lifetime value. You, right? There's strong repeat purchase rate. All of those things are tangible advantages to your business. So if you have a sense of community, those are all the things that can come with that. And the easiest way to find community is to find an existing community and tap into it with your storytelling, with your brand positioning. And so you're not trying to just 
cultivate this entirely new community from scratch, you're kind of finding a community that exists and you're creating something that makes them feel so seen and heard and recognized and feels tailor-made for them such that you can immediately kind of um, jumpstart that process. And part of what an identity-based brand how I is how I like to call them, what that does is you're creating something and the product is hopefully unique and differentiated um, and there's something you're solving that nobody else does. But additionally, the brand story that you're telling and the customer that you're targeting also ideally feels underserved. They feel like their needs have not been met. And if that's the case, then you're going to truly win those people over because not only are you solving a problem that needs to be solved, but you are making them feel seen and heard. And honestly, in this day and age, we feel uh, we look for a sense of belonging and kinship from brands. We just do. We live in a sort of consumer capitalist culture that has created that as sort of like a, a shift. And and so you can actually, um, you can cater to that in a way that really helps you fortify your business. Can you give us any examples of brands that are doing that well? Yeah, I think um, one video that I or one brand that I recently started to talk about that I think does that really well is Topicals. It's a skincare brand that targets these chronic skin conditions. They uh, focus on things like hyperpigmentation, eczema, but they're especially focused on maybe demographics that have been underserved by um, dermatology and the clinical science out there. And so not only are their products formulated in such a way that they're really good for maybe darker skin tones, um, especially the hyperpigmentation products, right? Um, but also a lot of their branding and storytelling is so inclusive and not just in a way that's paying lip service, but genuinely inclusive and it's founded by two women of color. And so I think that's a good example of a brand that maybe in a prior era, they could have easily just come out with the products and tried to cast a wide net but these days, you're, it's going to be so much harder to stand out if you do that. And also, you th what they're doing by kind of making everything feel more inclusive um, in every way is they're super serving a narrower segment of the market. But it turns out that segment is not even that narrow anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, I find that so fascinating. How much do you think that like a, a company's values influences their identity too? Like, you talked about like community and, and how like you need to overserve a certain group of people who feel underserved. And I'm just curious when it comes to like marketing and messaging, like how much of a company's values gets woven into how they're serving that community? Yeah. What, what would you recommend? Like the, what's the balance? Yeah. I mean, I think they can really go hand in hand. And when I say community, when I say underserved customers, I don't just mean, you know, um, I don't just mean creating a brand for Asian people, for example, right? Because I'm Asian. If I were to create a brand for uh, like other Asian women, that, that could be one strategy. But I also mean, I also mean potentially um, creating a brand for people who share a set of values that you believe in that they also share. So um, it can be, you know, sustainability. That's a that's one that's really trending and it's really important. And there are a lot of brands that really are designed around this principle of sustainability, both in their packaging and their formulations or in um, in sort of like, you know, the problem that they're solving, but also a lot of their messaging and storytelling is about sustainability. Now, if you're 
if you're really building a brand identity out of that, that is a sort of community. That is almost just sort of identity because people who really, really feel strongly about that share a certain set of values um, that, you know, make them their own community. So I think values are really important. Being guided by values is a powerful way to resonate with a certain community today. And it can be uh, a way to expand the definition of how we even think about community because it doesn't just have to, have to be about how old you are, how you look, or where you live, um, or whether you're, you know, a, a mom between the ages of 35 and 45. It these days, community can mean somebody who believes in this thing the way that I do. When we talk about identity-based brands, like obviously, there's a lot of brands out there that aren't that don't fall into that category. That maybe they were they did just see like another an existing business model that they wanted to tap into or. Um, an opportunity to make some cash, but say hypothetically, you know, that the founder of that brand over time matured and like kind of reached this point of like wanting more than just profit, like to be able to make an impact or to align more on values. Like you were just talking about, how do you, how would you recommend they go about that process of like almost like reverse engineering their, their values or starting to articulate how they could evolve into an identity based brand? Mm-hmm. I think it always has to come from an authentic place, right? You should never adopt a set of values or sort of add on a philanthropic initiative to your organization just because you feel pressured to, or as sort of like a way to signal that you're uh, sort of like a, a more values-based brand. It should come from a place that feels authentic to you, especially you as the founder, you as the leader. And so I, I would say take inventory of the causes or the things that you care about, the values that you care about. It doesn't even have to be explicitly overtly cause-driven or philanthropic at all. Um, that makes sense for some brands, maybe like Tom Shoes, maybe Warby Parker, but it doesn't make sense for a lot of brands. And so I would just sort of take inventory of what feels important to you and how do you want to, what feels important to you and of the things that are important to you, would they even align with what you're selling? It doesn't make sense to create, you know, a sock brand for uh, like, you know, young people, or I mean, maybe it would, but like there are certain kinds of consumer products, especially that kind of just are what they are. And you can try to make them target a certain customer, but it might feel a little contrived. So it also can't be forced. You can't force it just because you want to have this conversation about, let's say, inclusivity. It has to actually make sense in terms of the products. Um, but I would say be authentic and take inventory. And then maybe that looks like kind of shifting your storytelling and your messaging a little bit. Maybe that looks like really getting specific and focused about the customer you're targeting and you want to serve. Or maybe it looks like adding on a philanthropic initiative of we donate X percent of profits to this rainforest, you know, nonprofit, like whatever it is, um, it all has to feel aligned. And I think that's that sort of like strategically speaking, I think that's the way to do it. Awesome. Nice. You've done a really interesting analysis of some big brands like Glossier and Outdoor Voices, and you talked about the curse of capital. Can you give us like a quick synopsis of what that means and what like it means for those brands? Yeah. So the curse of capital is um, kind of a phrase I use to refer to the startups that have raised so much capital in an environment that was um, maybe easier to fundraise in, or maybe they were seeing enough traction and hyped up, up enough that investors were willing to pour a lot of capital into those brands. It, the curse of capital is when you have all this venture capital and you spend it 
too aggressively on things that actually end up making you more fragile as a business in times of shock to your business or uh, in times of sort of like tougher fundraising conditions. So for example, if you, Outdoor Voices is a good example. They raised, I think something over $60 million or something. I would have to double check that, but um, they raised a good amount of capital, especially for an apparel startup. Um, for a tech startup, that would be a very normal amount, but for an apparel startup in the time span that they did, it doesn't necessarily have to be too much, um, but the fact that they ended up losing a ton of money, their their losses were a lot bigger than they actually even projected year to year. That meant that it was too much and they spent it too much and they spent it on things that didn't actually fortify the foundations of their business such that when they had trouble raising, they were in trouble. And, and it was, you know, it was... It was a situation where they really had to uh, completely kind of, you know, pull back and, you know, figure out how to adjust in a way that was really disruptive. And that's an example. Um, another example would be Fast, right? A startup that's been in the news lately. They raised, I think, like over had over $120 million in the span of basically two years, um, and they just closed down. How do you spend that much money that fast? They raised hundreds of them, or they raised over $100 million hired hundreds of employees and were making 600K in revenue last year. That's, That's another example of how when you raise a lot of capital, I, paradoxically, it can actually put you in a tougher position because it's hard to be disciplined and restrained about how to spend that because it's much easier to be exuberant and optimistic when all the investors are throwing money at you, everybody's saying that you're going to be the next billion dollar company, and then you lose sight of how to be disciplined about that budget. And so you put yourself in a position where you have to raise an even bigger round just to survive. Mm -hmm. So that's that, the first example. That reminds me of, um, have, are you watching like We Crashed? It's about WeWork. I haven't seen it yet. Oh my gosh, it's so cringy because they'll be like, show, show on the screen like how much they're losing every day and how much they keep spending it's like oh it gives me anxiety but that that's what comes to mind when you yeah, have to watch that in controlled doses or else it just like <laughs> my stress <laughs> let's talk about celebrity brands i know that like celebrities and influencers they pay, play such a large role in shaping our consumer behavior how do you feel about celebrities launching brands maybe like launching another skincare brand and if they're not launching brands what they sh what should they be doing instead I think a lot of celebrities are launching brands, especially skincare and beauty brands, because first of all, it's easier than ever to launch a brand. Platforms like Shopify have made it so almost turnkey. And then a lot of people I think are potentially pitching these celebrities and influencers and promising them that they'll make a lot of money and they'll be like Rihanna or Kylie Jenner and, and um, become billionaires. And so it's tempting to jump into that. Um, so now i think we've tipped over into a point where the market is saturated there are too many celebrity brands out there a lot of them are not putting the customer first in terms of thinking what do they need that doesn't exist how can we solve their problems instead they're thinking how can i slap my name and likeness onto a brand and onto the packaging so i can make money and that's not the right place to be starting a business from because even from a purely pragmatic perspective that's not going to go anywhere if you're not putting the customer first it's shocking to me how many people overlook that simple sort of principle of putting the customer and their needs first. Um, but I think when you're a celebrity, it's easy to assume that you don't quite need to be as obsessive about that. But that's a fallacy you actually do, especially these days when it's so competitive. And so a lot of them are starting brands um, and they're not starting them for necessarily the right reasons. And so I think 
consumers are becoming more skeptical to the point where now I do think there's such knee-jerk cynicism and skepticism about these celebrity brands when they do announce that they're launching that you actually need to overcome that. Maybe 10 years ago, people would have been, they would have leaned in because you are a celebrity. Now they're going to lean back and think, I am probably just going to wait and see it until the reviews come in, until other people say it's worth buying because I'm not going to spend my money on this cash grab brand. That's how they feel. Um, and so I think a better thing for celebrities to do if they do want to diversify their wealth, which is part of why they do these things, or if they want to get into the startup game um, or have you know equity in some brand instead of starting their own brand, um, which if they do, they should do it thoughtfully. They should put really the time and work required to come up with something original and high quality and hire the right team for it. But let's say you don't do that, but you still want to participate in that game somehow. I would say either just start to invest in them. And a lot of celebrities do, and influencers are increasingly starting to invest in startups. Um, you do need to sort of be able to like find the right deals because most of those startups are going to go to zero. But I think another thing that's underrated is what Bella Hadid did, what Dakota Johnson did. Um, a few different celebrities have done this, where you find a brand that exists that you really believe in, where you genuinely love the product as a customer. And then you say, hey, can I be involved in some way? Can I be an investor in your next round? Can I promote your brand? And then over time, you start to build an authentic relationship with the founder, with the team, with the brand. And then you become an authentic spokesperson for that brand, plus you have some equity stake such that you're almost a partner, you're almost an extension of the team. And so I think that's a really powerful way to take all the clout and the capital that you have and use it to back somebody else that you believe in instead of you sort of having this facade of I'm the CEO and founder when maybe you're not really even that involved. Yeah. And I've seen you talk about influencers who are kind of doing like a similar approach, or maybe they're coming up with brands or products or even like Airbnbs. I saw you talk about an influencer who started Airbnb business where it's like really different, but it still like makes sense for their brand. So they're not just, you know, coming out with another product, but maybe it's like a bit more authentic and creative to what they do. Like I think Emma Chamberlain came out with like a coffee company. Like are there celebrity or influencer brands that you feel like are really kind of hitting the mark in terms of authenticity and, you know, not just adding another product to the market just because? Yeah, this is a random example, but Tyler, the creator has this like kind of streetwear brand. Um, and part of it is golf themed and it's called golf LaFleur and it's so quirky, but it feels just so him. And I think his, fans really love it but also the items just seem sort of like thoughtfully designed it does seem like an extension of his artistic passions in a way that i i really commend him for because um when you first hear about it it, it sounds so random but i think that's precisely the kind of thing that people need to embrace more is doing things that maybe aren't just another tequila brand another skincare brand so another um example is uh Shay Mitchell has a luggage company called Base, and people love it. And a lot of people actually don't even know that she's the one behind it because she genuinely loves luggage. And she's added all these thoughtful details to it because she has a point of view. I think that's another good hint that maybe a, a niche or a product is the right one for you. If you are a celebrity or influencer thinking about breaking into that space is 
if you have a really strong point of view on what needs to be different about the existing offerings in the space. And I would actually argue that this is definitely true of Kim Kardashian and Skims. She mm -hmm. has been wearing shapewear for a long time. She's been talking about it. She has a really strong point of view on how it should be different. And her, the fact that you know, Skims is now, I think, a $3.2 billion company in valuation is a testament to the fact that she is genuinely passionate and involved because it's a space that she cares about. And so I think that's another example. Great examples. Yeah, solid. One question we like to ask all of our guests is, um, what's one piece of advice that you've heard or received in the past that you'd want to pass on to our audience? This is a really good question. I would say this is a cliche, but as often happens, it's a cliche for a reason because there's truth to it. I think it's important to choose something where you will enjoy the journey as much as the destination. Because when you are an entrepreneur, for example, it's a lot of work. You're sacrificing so much probably. And so why not do something that feels enjoyable to you day to day in addition to potentially you know, pushing you towards a big payoff? And, and also, I think it's more likely that when you are passionate about something authentically, then it's just going to come across. People can feel it when you're doing interviews or when you're, you know, the face of your brand or when you're designing the product, you're just going to infuse every single thing that you do with that passion. And I think that's so important. And I, I do think that we're kind of in this interesting time where it's maybe sexy and glamorized to be an entrepreneur. And so everybody assumes that they need to you know, go into entrepreneurship and then they kind of hastily pick an idea that they think is going to, you know, take off. And so they come up with some derivative idea of crypto blockchain or skincare CBD that, and, and maybe it's not actually what the right idea is for you. Maybe you need to sit with yourself and really sort of like experiment with a few different things to find out what actually does feel like the most authentic extension of you. And I think that's the thing that's most likely to succeed. Good advice. Now, you've been sharing lots of advice and you've also been sharing lots of examples. But another question that we want to kind of start to end off with is who in general, like context aside, what brands out there or even creators are making waves right now and why? Hmm. Okay. That's a good question. What brands are making waves? I, I like topicals a lot. I already mentioned topicals. I think they're doing something really interesting. I think there's a brand called uh, We're Not Really Strangers and they make these cards that kind of like facilitate deep conversations. I really love that concept, not only because it's such a simple but powerful concept, but I think it's very timely in the sense that it's tapping into the zeitgeist of people feeling maybe more isolated and alone and craving deep human connection. And also that's an interesting physical product-based company that has the potential to become a media company in a way. So I find that to be really strategic, but also very meaningful. I think that's another one. I think I, I really like, uh, I like brands similar to, there's a hair clip brand called MEJ, and I really love what they do because they're so good at sort of taking this seemingly ordinary product and elevating it with their really with their really strong creative direction. And I think we're going to start to see more of that as well, where you can, you can either sort of treat an object as a transactional sort of like regular object, or you can craft a brand around it that elevates it to something bigger. And so I often reference them as um, writing the playbook for really how to do that. So, um, so I think that's another example that I like. So great examples. Last and final question, where can listeners connect with you? 
So my TikTok and my Instagram are at I am Dolma, D-U-L-M-A, and that's where they can find me. And that's where we found you. That's right. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Dolma, for joining us and sharing all this expertise and wisdom. It, uh, it was really beneficial for us, and I'm, I know it will be for our listeners too. Good. I'm glad. It was a pleasure.